I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this edition of our podcast, I sat down with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA Commissioner and now a Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a board member of drug maker Pfizer, among other interests. We discussed vaccine supply and distribution and the employer role in that. We also talked about drug pricing legislation, healthcare costs, and employer engagement in healthcare delivery. Give it a listen. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to just jump right in and start on some questions regarding the vaccine. You've spoken recently about COVID-19 variants potentially wreaking havoc into the spring and essentially until we get enough people vaccinated. Can you talk about the challenges of vaccine distribution, supply, confidence, whatever you see them as, and then any solutions you see? Yeah, well, well, thanks for the question. I mean, with the variants, um, the concern is that the vaccines may not be as protective against some of these new variants. Uh, it's particularly the ones in South Africa, the um, B1351, and then the one that's in Brazil, P1, which looks really concerning. Right now, there's preliminary evidence looking at um, the plasma that gets produced, the antibodies that get produced after people are vaccinated, and testing that serum against the, these new strains of the virus to see if they neutralize the virus. And the early evidence is that they neutralize the virus, but they're, they're not as robust. And so it raises the question on whether or not the vaccines are gonna be as protective uh, and whether or not that protection is gonna have the same duration against these new variants. It's not binary. It's not that you enter a situation, it'd be very unlikely to have a situation where all of a sudden the vaccines would be defeated by a new variant. What's more likely to happen is that after these, this virus drifts over time, you're likely to get some new strains that um, the vaccine doesn't cover as well. And that, that seems to be the concern uh, now. You know, with the distribution, I think the distribution's improving. The initial challenges were with um, getting sites up to distribute the vaccine through. Initially, they were targeting nursing homes and providers, and that was relatively uh, a relatively defined task. You know, you knew where the nursing homes were. They, they contracted with Walgreens and CVS to go into the nursing homes to, to distribute vaccines there. And in terms of reaching healthcare providers, you can distribute through the hospitals. But once you get beyond those communities and you start going out into the broader community, that gets more difficult because then you have to set up community-based vaccination sites and reach a more diverse, um, diverse set of, you know, people, a diverse set of, of conditions, rural uh, environments, urban environments. And so it's a more complex task. It's not sort of a one-sized model where if you distribute through the hospitals, you're going to be able to reach healthcare employees. If you distribute through Walgreens and, and, and CVS, they'll be able to go into nursing homes. Those are relatively defined uh, tasks. This, is, this has more heterogeneity to it and it's more of a challenge. And so you've seen them struggling to get this up and running. I think right now we're in a much better place. Um, you've seen the Biden administration move to um, distribute through the, the pharmacies, community pharmacies and big box stores, that's gonna create a very big footprint. And they're also partnering with the states to support more federal sites, more sort of state federal sites where they can move a lot of people through inside stadiums or, or schools or firehouses, things like that. And distribution, I don't think is gonna be as much of a problem in the coming weeks. I think this, the, the challenge is really gonna to shift to supply. We're gonna have enough distribution sites. We're still gonna have challenges reaching certain communities, certain hard to reach communities, but we're gonna have more distribution sites than we have supply. And then you're gonna hear more governors and mayors talking about supply challenges. I think that's gonna last for about three or four weeks. And then you're gonna to start to hear the conversation shift to demand in my view. I think the demand for this vaccine, we sort of take for granted, we think everyone wants it because you know people around us want it. 
But I think the demand is very deep, but not as wide as we su suspect. I think that there's people who intensely want the vaccine. Um, but once you get beyond maybe 100 million, 125 million people, I think the demand's softer. And we're going to have to do more to try to, you know, reach out to communities and try to, um, you know, want people, get people to want to get vaccinated, especially because getting vaccinated for COVID isn't going to be like getting your flu vaccine. It's not going to be offered everywhere you go. It's not going to be in your doctor's office and at work and at, at the local CVS and you can just get it when you go up to the counter. You're going to have to make an appointment. You're going to have to show up at a specific time. You have to come back for the second dose. There's a lot of friction here. So I think once we get beyond 100 and 125 million people, demand may be softer than we think. And, and final point is, you know, the question is, well, when can I go online to get it? I'm, you know, if you're a healthy 40-year-old or a healthy 50-year-old, when will you be able to get it or at least make an appointment to get it? I think it's going to be sooner than we think because I think we're going to work through the 65 and above population. That's about 50 million people. If you think that maybe 40 million of that 50 million are going to get vaccinated, which would be very high, get 80%. Right now, in some states uh, of the 75 and above, they've got 90% penetration, which is good. So if you think you get 80 to 90% penetration in, in the 65 and above, that's maybe 40 million vaccines, 45 million vaccines. We'll probably work through that in the next three or four weeks. I think as you get into, as you get towards March, governors are going to have to start making this more generally available. Certainly by the end of March, we may be able to vaccinate 75 million people, at least get a first dose in 75, 80 million people by the end of March. Once you're getting to that number of people, you're, you're at the point where you're not going to be able to just sort of select groups and say, well, we're going to vaccinate this group or that group. You're at the point where you have to say, well, anyone who wants it now can go online and make an appointment. And maybe it takes four weeks to work off that demand of everyone rushing online to make an appointment, but you're going to have to open it up for general availability. So, you know, the people have said, well, you know, you may not be able to go online and get it until June or May or the summer. I think it may be sooner than that. Well, that's hopeful. <laughs> Drilling down a little bit deeper into the employer role here. Number one, is there a role for employers in vaccine distribution? There may or may not be. And then in general, mitigation and, and sort of in the new world of maybe COVID is lesser but around. What's the employer role here? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is going to be um, a challenge in perpetuity, at least for the foreseeable future. I mean, it's hard to know what it's going to look like in five years, but at least for the next year or two, I think we're going to be vaccinating for COVID. I think we're probably going to, you know, we don't know yet, but we're probably going to be in a, a, a position where this may be an annual vaccination. We may want to adjust the vaccines on an annualized basis to accommodate new variants. Um, you know, where the situation is that the old vaccine is still affording some protection against the new variant, but if you can vaccinate with a booster that, that incorporates the protein from the new variant, you're giving very specific coverage for that new variant. So now you have the benefit of the old antibodies, which are partially protective, and the new antibodies, which are more fully protective. So I think we may be in a situation where this becomes something that gets annualized. And um, as we move towards that, it could look a lot like the flu where employers, when they have a flu vaccine drive, they have um, a drive for COVID vaccination as well. It's going to require the vaccines to be reformulated in ways that they can be stored more easily. Um, it's going to require maybe new entrants that can be distributed in more austere settings, but we're, we're hopefully going to have that. I mean, the, the first generation of vaccines were moved onto the market quickly. A lot of time was spent developing them in terms of running very large clinical trials. But if you think about where the time was made up, where, where time was saved, it was on a lot of the formulation work. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you were designing a perfect vaccine, it would be stored at room temperature, it'd be one dose, 
That might have taken six months or 12 months to do. It's doable from a technology standpoint, but companies, and I'm on a board of Pfizer, companies didn't, companies said, we don't have 12 months to try to, you know, get this to, to do the testing we'd have to do to see if this can be stored in a refrigerator. We need to move this along. So I think they're going to go back and do that work and you'll have second generation vaccines that are going to be able to be um, distributed in more austere settings. The J&J vaccine, if that does get authorized, which it looks very promising, is a vaccine that could be stored more easily. It could be one shot, at least for people under the age of 65. So I think employers are going to get in this game. It's not going to be this first go around because the government's buying up the vaccine. The government's distributing the vaccine. It may not even be for the fall. The government may still be in a situation where they're distributing the vaccine this fall. But I think longer term employers are going to get into this market. And I think at least for employers that have um, a lot of employees that are either in high risk jobs, high risk circumstances, they might want to at some point look at could we you know, procure a vaccine and distribute it at work. You know, if you're, um, if you're Amazon, you have a lot of employees that work closely together in a warehouse or you're, you know, Delta Airlines and you have a lot of transportation employees, you want to make sure that they all get vaccinated. You might see some businesses stepping in or factories, manufacturing sites. You've seen some of the automakers talk about this. You might see businesses step into the market. Right now, they can't do that for the first quarter. I believe the government, you know, legally is the only um, purchaser. And I think until these vaccines are fully approved, right now they're available under an emergency use authorization. Until they're fully approved, you're not going to see private entities making purchases. But maybe by the, the summer, you're going to start to see that uh, for certain businesses. Let's move um, now away from the vaccine and into some future uh, conversation around the administration. So what do you see happening with drug pricing in Congress and the Biden administration, given your expertise with Pfizer and everything? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think there will be legislation this year on drug pricing. I think the bill in the Senate by Grassley, Senators Grassley and Senator Wyden, that was introduced uh, a year ago is probably the starting point for the conversation. You know, I think the sort of the, the broad contours of what drug pricing legislation is going to look like is, is going to be um, Congress trying to impose restrictions on the ability of companies to take price increases over time in exchange for uh, more funding to help offset out-of-pocket costs so you get patients who now can get on drugs and stay on drugs. And so the implicit sort of trade, if you will, that the drug makers are making is they're giving up margin for, for hopefully expanded volumes. And that's sort of the economic bargain, if you will, at a basic level. And in the process, what you're doing is hopefully enabling more access. You're making it easier for people to get on drugs and stay on drugs that they need um, for their health. I think that the sort of circumstance in which drug pricing legislation would get moved would probably be a pay for in a broader bill around um, healthcare affordability and healthcare access. There's going to be, a lot, there's a lot of, it's not, there's going to be, there is a lot of accrued morbidity from what we've been through this last year. People have been knocked off their insurance. They've lost their job. People didn't go to the doctor. And so we're going to have to figure out how to enhance existing programs to both provide coverage to people who lost coverage or, or got, became underinsured as a result of the economic hardship, as well as people who maybe are underinsured because their policies aren't that robust. And now they've missed cancer screening and, and other things, and you're going to see more, um, more morbidity. And so that's going to cost money. And then the question is going to come, how do you pay for it? And one of the ways I think they're going to look to pay for it is to try to take some money out of some of the existing uh, um, reimbursement for things like, you know, drugs, medical technology. It always ends up being uh, something what Congress looks for as a pay for in broader public, 
broader public health programs. Mm -hmm. That was actually one of my one of my follow on questions around healthcare costs because employers obviously shoulder a lot of that burden and they are just rising and rising. And I was wondering, as you said, if they would see sort of a long tail of this in the next few years of um, things that weren't taken care of during this time that now come up and just create more and more cost. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, uh, sadly, I think it's going to get baked in. And I don't think it's going to be something where you see sort of, you, you might see a bolus of healthcare utilization as people um, come back to receiving healthcare. They've kind of done that. We've also introduced technologies that make it healthcare delivery more efficient. I mean, we've seen sort of a one, one-time inflection in terms of changing costs of healthcare delivery from the introduction of telehealth. And we're not going back to a world where we weren't using those technologies. I think people have gotten accustomed to using those technologies and realize they're, they could be far more efficient under the right circumstances. But, you know, there's going to be a, a crude morbidity. There's no question about it. And will, when will that play out? It's going to play out probably over a long period of time. I don't think you're going to see suddenly a, a very big surge over a short period of time in healthcare costs because of it. But you're going to see it over time. It's going to get baked into the baseline. In terms of the ACA itself, Biden has said he, in the past, he wants to increase subsidies, offer premium tax credits. Do you think his changes to the ACA will stop there, or do you see us moving to a public option? Yeah, I, I don't. Um, where they've tried this in states, it, it uh, hasn't worked. I think that there's going to be sufficient political opposition to it, um, you know, even within the industry, that it might be a bridge too far. I, I do see them trying to expand eligibility. They're going to try to increase um, the subsidies. Uh, there's certainly, you're, certainly states are going to throw in the towel states that are holding out on a Medicaid expansion. I think you're going to see more states expand Medicaid eligibility. But I don't, I don't see them reaching for a public option. I think with 50, um, 50 seats in the Senate, it's going to be too difficult to get that through. What about any, do you think they'll push any for, anything forward on value-based payment programs? I mean, that's a secular change that for sure that, that that's going to continue. That's been bipartisan under um, Republican and Democratic administrations. I mean, the, the sort of contours of, of what they've done under Medicare, even under the ACA, really got started in the Bush administration under the Medicare Modernization Act. So I think you're going to continue to see movements towards different forms of capitation too, um, you know, bundled payments. A lot of this... Um, wasn't really advanced as aggressively under the Trump administration, the Trump CMS. I think they're going to get back on the sort of Obama agenda of trying to move towards different forms of um, bundle payments, shared savings, forms of effectively forms of capitation uh, where you're putting more risk on providers and it may drive continued consolidation in the delivery market. Some of that was put on hold. You may see sort of um, renewed consolidation in the healthcare services space as well. Hmm. So we talked about employers facing higher healthcare costs. Um, I, I really just want to see if you if you see any sort of inflection point coming in this healthcare cost conversation, and is there anything that employers can do to sort of drive change in that area beyond just you know yeah we're we're finding efficiencies in telehealth and those types of things, but is there any sort of big thing that employers can do to kind of turn that? Turn, help move that conversation? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of the um, changes that you're going to see, the Affordable Care Act really is sort of, um, 
it's settled business now. I mean, we, we've sort of, we've gone through years of debate about the ACA and the ACA is now settled. I, I think that that is now the basis for um, healthcare reform for the foreseeable future. And, you know, President Biden's already talked about using that as a template um, that they're going to build on. I, I think from an employer standpoint, what it's going to mean is just an acceleration from what we've seen over the last four years in some of these more capitated models. And so the idea of, you know, you've seen employers move towards trying to bring more healthcare services on site and take and do more direct management of, of healthcare rather than the old sort of ASO model um, where you where it's all um, contracted out. You're seeing businesses get more engaged in um, delivering healthcare to try to control costs better. Uh, I think you're going to continue to see that. And, and there's been a lot of um, innovation delivery models. For years, we didn't see venture capital. Um, I work with a venture capital firm and partner at New Enterprise Associates. For years, we didn't see venture capital going into like facilities-based startups. Now you're seeing a lot of private equity money and venture capital going into those, those kinds of ventures because employers and others are looking for innovation and delivery models. And so I think that that's going to be a continued trend and, and you know, more employers are going to um, you know, get more engaged in, in how services are getting delivered to their employees. Fascinating. That's great. Listen, it's a pleasure to chat with you, um, Dr. Gottlieb. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the time today. Take Thank care. Thank you. That was Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to check out the rest of our podcasts at leadersedge.com.